And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. The year-end interviews. Who do they benefit most? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. You're listening to The Bridge. Good to talk to you once again. Um, this is one of the few Wednesdays we'll be talking to you throughout this year, as Wednesdays are going to be a kind of a day off for the bridge. We're going to a four-day week. Everything else will be in place, though. But today's different. We're, uh, we got a special, special interview today uh, with Rob Russo, former Bureau Chief of the CBC in Ottawa, former Bureau Chief of Canadian Press in Ottawa, also correspondent in Washington and Quebec City for CP. Uh, what we're talking about today is the year-end interviews. You probably saw or heard about a whole bunch of them over the holidays, year-end interviews with the leaders of various parties. Well, the question becomes, who do they benefit most? Do they benefit the leaders? Do they benefit the news organizations? Or do they benefit the people? Who benefits most? And a lot of other questions that are associated with this, including the age-old one that many of you write about sometimes and ask me about, do you send in all the questions to the leaders before the interview? We'll answer that question too. But before we get to Rob, uh, just a couple of notes on yesterday's program with Janice Stein. You remember lots of nice comments about it. And lots of nice comments, by the way, over the holidays uh, from people who... uh, uh, you know, wish us here at the bridge, you know what us means, um, happy holidays, and though we return that, uh, that wish for happy holidays for you and a happy new year as well. And lots of nice comments, too, about people who ended up getting the new book as a, a Christmas gift, and I appreciate that as well. Okay, well, the book is the prize for the best question this week, and the question category is... Pretty straightforward. It is, if you had the opportunity, what one thing about the Canadian political system would you change? One thing. Not, you know, one thing you can handle in probably two or three sentences, right? Not two or three paragraphs or two or three pages. And most of you, and an incredible number of you wrote already in this last 24 hours, um, adhered to that. And, you know, I'm sorry for the ones with the big, longer letters. I did warn you. One point. Okay? One point. Um, So you can keep writing. Uh, We're not closing this out until probably supper time, uh, uh, Eastern time zone uh, today. Right? And this will be a part of your turn tomorrow. The best letter, we'll um, we'll get a copy of the new book signed. And I'll get it out to you. Uh, So that's it. Uh, The new book, How Canada Works, Mark Bulgich and myself uh, wrote, and uh, we're very happy with the way things have gone on the the marketing of that book over the pre-Christmas period. Um, So that's it. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That is where to write today. Today, closing out, let's say 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Today will be the closeout of the competition because we've got a lot to go through here. Um, And uh, we will uh, will deal with that for tomorrow's program along with the Random Ranter, his first take of the year. 
So we'll hear your, what, uh, what he has to say. Uh, all right, enough already. Let's get to today's topic, and that is the year-end interviews. Who did they benefit most? Let's have that conversation starting right now with Rob Russo. So, Rob, let me start with um, who, who benefits most from these year-end interviews? Is it, is it the leader, whoever that leader happens to be, or is it the, the media organization that's doing the interviews, or is it the public? Well, it's always a good idea when voters get a chance to assess what their leaders are like under the pressure of these interviews and when they're asked pertinent questions about um, what they're going to do with the country. I, I Look, I'm a... Whenever it came to campaigns, I, I like to think about uh, organizing a, a, a citizen first um, thrust to, to campaign coverage. So I, I think I think voters get the most out of it if the interviews are, are done well. And even when they're not done particularly well, and we'll get into this a little bit later. A lot of people criticize some of what's called the soft interviews. Uh, but I, I think that we can even derive some benefit from those. Um, I can tell you leaders don't like them very much. Um, they go to them reluctantly. Um, some of them don't mind skirmishing. Um, and some of them, um, certainly like some of the, uh, interviewers more than others. Um, and we saw some of that this year. some, you know, some of the, the leaders avoided interviews with certain people. Um, and, and reporters get something out of it or, or journalistic organizations do to a certain extent, because it takes them into the holiday period when they're, often isn't much domestic news in particular, and they can chop the interviews up and reuse them uh, uh, throughout a very slow news period with what they call exclusive content. How exclusive that is, though, uh, is is left in the eye of the citizen. Often, um, these guys are asked the same questions, uh, and they know what questions are coming, and they prepare for them uh, long in advance. What's the, what's the process? So walk is busy. You know, you've been bureau chief, a couple of major... Uh, uh, Ottawa-based uh, bureaus, you know, with The Economist, um, you're getting certain interviews. What's the process on these kind of year? There's two t- two time periods that I see as regular leaders' interviews. One is the year-end interview, and the other is often the campaign-end interview. Um, that, right. You know, when you're, you're, in, you're into a campaign, usually in that last week, uh, certain news organizations will get one-on-one time with with whoever the leaders are um but what's the process going into that well the the, the ones around um uh, around year-end interviews they're they're really um just like jingle bells and awkward office parties they're everywhere just before christmas right <laughs> um and and they um um uh, there's a lot that actually goes goes into them the, the leaders sit down with their communications people and other people, and they say, here are the questions you're probably going to get. And they go through, them. they go through the potential answers. And you can see that you can see that in, in the similar natures of the responses that, for instance, Justin Trudeau got, uh, uh gave this year in, in his year in interviews. So there's a lot of prep that goes into it on the leader's side, uh, on our, on our side, on, on the, on the uh, reporter's side, 
we sketch out questions. We sketch out possible responses. I, I remember sitting down with, with you, for instance. You didn't do these year-end interviews very often at, uh, at the end of your time at the CBC, and, and we'll go into that in a second. But we, we, we sort of came up with a game plan of what it was we were hoping to get out of this, and then we kind of tailored our questions around that game plan. What is it that we want the prime minister or the leader to say? What, what is it that we would like to hear from him? Uh, and 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 then we we built our questions accordingly. Then there's the nature of this end of year or end of campaign. Uh, end of campaign you see less now because the campaign has to be going very very well for a leader to sit down, and often they don't want to risk that. So you see those end of campaign ones less. But at the end of the year, it's a cattle call, uh, and and so a, a lot of people. You were one of them. Susan Delacourt is another one at the at the Toronto Star. Say. I'm going to wait. I'm going to say, I'm going to take a rain check on this. As long as you guarantee me, I've got an interview. I'm going to do my interview in January or February because just like jingle bells, none of them kind of stand out uh, distinctively unless there's something really, really uh, um, big in in the interview. And because they're so um, prepared, it's, it's not often that you get a lot of big news out of these interviews. So who says no? It's people who might want to wait a little bit, like like you did, like Susan Delacourt uh, does, and say no. I, I was one of these guys that um, that suggested that we never say no, that we always uh, get it. Whenever you have a chance to sit down with a minister or a leader or a prime minister, you take it. So I was I, I tried to be clever and said, well, Peter has a separate interview. The Ottawa Parliamentary Bureau gets an annual interview, and we'll take that, so that we got as much face time as possible. With with the prime minister in in particular, so so then it's all about where do you do it? That you know, like that becomes a big question. Uh, prime ministers in particular like to do these interviews in controlled settings. Uh, used to be twenty four Sussex. It might be the prime minister's office. And now now it's uh, Rideau Gate Cottage. They want to do it where they can control the backdrop. Uh, and they can often feel much more comfortable in those circumstances. Reporters want to take them out of that comfort zone, uh, not just rhetorically, but also physically. And they think that sometimes that leads to a better interview. So a lot of thought, particularly in television, uh, goes to uh, what it's going to look like. Let's get them outside, for instance. Let's get them with voters passing by, with, with gasping and doing double takes. Uh, let's, let's get them out of their comfort zone, walking, talking. Uh, that sort of thing. So there is a fair amount of meticulous planning that, that goes into it. I like your um, uh, your suggestion that what the media or what some media organizations like to do is sit down, pre-plan these things, and ask the question, "What do we want to get out of this?" Because you know that in the in the office of the prime minister or the leader of the opposition or whatever, they're asking a similar question. What do we want to put into this? Like, what do we want the story to be coming out of it? What do we want to say? How do we want to try and swing this interview uh, to what we want to talk about? So you've got these two competing thrusts going on at the same time. That's right. And also, what is it that we don't want to talk about is is uh, what the uh, the leaders are talking about as well. I, I mean, if, if you're if you're Justin Trudeau, everybody knows the question coming to him, and 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 and, and the basic. Uh, question that came up to Trudeau over and over and over again this time is why haven't you quit yet? Uh, um, it wasn't like, are you going to stay? It's how come you're still here? 
Uh, and he knows that question is going to come along. He doesn't really want to deal with it, but he knows he has to deal with it. Uh, with Pierre Poilier, is it the question uh, he got, not often, but he, he got in a lot of his interviews was, you know, how come you haven't showed us any policy cards yet? Show us some of your policy cards. Um, and and so those those are the the, the questions that they they want to get out uh, answered. They, the messages you say that they want to transmit, but they're also the ones they don't want to transmit as well. They don't want to deal with. It, it, it's funny because um, you kind of know the answers to all of those questions before mm-hmm. you go. Before you sit down, you know he's not going to suddenly say, "Yeah, I'm going to be leaving," or. You know, I was right. going to leave then, but now I'm going to wait another month. He's never going to say that. He's always going to say, I'm here for the long haul and I'm, I'm running and that's it. That's all. And as opposed to the, you know, in relation to the opposition leader, they're not going to, you know, show all their stuff. They're not going to strut it all in front of the media um, a year or two years, possibly from an election campaign. That's a given and goes back, you know, decades. That's how opposition leaders operate so some of those some of the questions are predictable the answers are equally predictable unless somebody screws up unless they slip up you know and 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 say something that they weren't planning to say but then you know these guys have been around for a while now they know how to handle those kind of obvious questions but 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 there are still times when they might not slip up but they might reveal one or two things that helps you um, draw the faint outlines of, of where they might be going with policy or why, where they might be going with their career. Um, in terms of whether they're staying or going, it's, it's as, as you said, it, it's, it's a complete head fake and deep. Uh, again, Susan Delacourt did a, um, a look at, at how Trudeau responded to these questions as to why aren't you leaving and reminded us that in the winter of 92-93, um, Mulroney did a bunch of year-end interviews knowing, going into them, that he was going to resign in a couple of months. He didn't say any of that. He, did, he, he never, ever intimated in one way, but he knew he had a date in his head, he had, he had a date circled, and he was just going through the motions. Um, and, and, and so uh, they know, we, we don't know, but it's our job to try to pin them down, not necessarily on whether they're going to stay or go, but what they're going to do policy-wise, what they regret uh, doing in the past year, uh, and and uh, you know how how they're feeling about about the country and and about the people they're leading, and sometimes we do get little glimpses that are more revelatory than than they than they might have intended to, or they're trying to give us hints, and we've got to carefully comb through the entrails of it all. Uh, and and see what is there because sometimes there there is very very interesting material there. All right. Well, so tell me, you know, of the what seemed like dozens of your interviews this year, did did any of them reveal glimpses not only of what they're planning to do, but glimpses of who they are that surprised us? Yeah. You, you know. Um, let, let me start with the the uh, the, the most disdained interviews by by uh, those of us in the, in the parliamentary press gallery, and that's the friendly interview. They all do the friendly interview. Um, the the prime minister does one with with Terry Demonte, who is a former radio host in Montreal. He's done one every year for years and years and years, decades. Yeah, before uh, really. long before he was even in politics. 
That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, I, I actually find it very, very interesting yeah. and revelatory. Me too. Um, it's, uh, they sit there with a beer. Uh, the prime minister is obviously very, very relaxed. He talks uh, about some behind the scenes stuff that, that you normally would not think he would, he would talk about. He told, told a great story about uh, the leader of Mexico and Joe Biden. They were down, they were down in Mexico city for, uh, for a summit and um, AMLO uh, took, took them on this old creaky elevator with their wives um, and uh, just to show them, he said he was just going to show them uh, the elevator. And the next thing you knew, he closed the door and got it going, uh, lurching downwards three floors before the Secret Service could do anything about it. They were standing there gape mouth. The elevator opened up three floors below and they were out in the street. And can you imagine? Can you imagine the Secret Service? Uh, apparently they all enjoyed it immensely um, you know, for a few moments uh, like like real human beings out there among the great wash and can you imagine the people on the Mexico City street suddenly seeing you know, the, the leaders of three countries but just imagine how panicked the Secret Service were they got a, a great a great kick out of that uh, the Prime Minister talked about how he likes to go to Canadian Tire some Saturday mornings putting on a ball cap and wandering about like these are the kinds of things that he doesn't often talk about. Um, the same with Pierre Poilier, uh, t- talked about going tobogganing with, with his, his daughter and, and uh, showing his son the, the, for the first time, his young son, the meaning of Christmas, um, some, some uh, awful sounding drink that they concoct every year called moose milk um, that, that, in, that involves uh, Baileys and, and something else. Uh, but you just... Um, they, they, they remind us sometimes in these interviews that they have lifelike tendencies and that's not a bad thing. But that don't really don't isn't you think even thing. that stuff, even both those examples are kind of like they could have been planned, you, you know, they're, yeah, they're aides saying you've got to say, you got to look more human. You got to sound more human, tell them stuff that you haven't talked about before. So you, you end up with those kind of stories. Like, I mean, I really like Terry DeMonte's interview because he also pulled back the curtain a little bit, was able to get, uh, Trudeau to pull back the curtain a little bit on in terms of what his strategy was, and he, he was the first one to get this stuff out about how I, he's going to you know uh, paint Polyev in in the, in the Trump way, sort of the American right. This is the big battle to come, um, and right. you know, and that that was revealing and gave a, a sense of where uh, direction that things might be going in uh, with Polyev. He seemed to have an interesting strategy, which was doing a lot of local and regional interviews, as well as yeah. interviews that are very, you know, he wasn't going to get in trouble doing an interview with the Toronto Sun. Um, well, although that one wasn't, wasn't a bad one, I would say that, that it's true that there was keen competition for the friendliest interview with, with Pierre Poilier. Um, but I thought Brian Lilly's interview wasn't, wasn't bad at all. I, I thought it was pretty good. There were some howls of, uh, of outrage about um, Rex Murphy's interview. I, I think Shannon Proudfoot did a column on it in yeah. the. Uh, yeah, she in, sure in, did. In, in the Globe Mail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think one of the questions was about school boards uh, teaching what he called a, a woke 
agenda. And his question was, it's a scandal. Uh, and what, and, and then, and then what you have kind of looking perplexed saying, is there a question coming? And finally Rex kind of blurted out, what do you think of my scandal? Um, well, that's, so, re- that's yeah, Rex. Look, and uh, you know, Rex has, there, but, has always been that way. He's, he, he's not the, the, the uh, traditional journalist asking questions. He's, he's the traditional columnist giving statements and trying to get you to react to them. Yeah. I uh, I enjoy I always enjoyed Rex, um, but yes, but look, Poilier took took the tack of, uh, of basically avoiding the parliamentary press gallery, um, and and doing interviews with people who uh, he felt much more comfortable with. Um, Trudeau did that with Terry DeMonte, um, and uh, but the the Terry DeMonte interview is unique. Um, you know, we talk about some some answers that are practiced. It, it doesn't look like Trudeau is reaching in the grab bag of cliches when he's sitting down with DeMonte. And you can tell there are a couple of times like that story about him in the elevator with Biden and Amo, where it's almost like he doesn't think he should be telling this story. Uh, and, and he, and he goes ahead and does it despite um, his, his, uh, his kind of better, better, uh, uh, you know, whether or not he should go ahead and do it. Um, so, so, uh, that that one's unique, but all of them are interesting. All of them you can derive information from. You really can. Did anybody, through what you've read and listened and watched, did any of the leaders screw up? Screw up? I would say no. Um, they did reveal some elements of policy that I think bear watching and and bear further questioning on. Um, uh, look, uh, let's let's take uh, like you always want the prime minister to accept responsibility for mistakes. Respon- prime ministers never want to talk about mistakes, um, but um, there is now a sense that immigration uh, and and the number of newcomers in total coming to Canada has gotten ahead of the capacity of the public school system, the public Medicare system, uh, and housing to to accept the newcomers and so repeatedly the prime minister was asked about this issue and repeatedly he, he kind of ducked it but once in a while he would say something like uh you know are, weren't you wrong on this weren't, weren't you wrong on this and and finally in in one interview it was with radio canada and that's the other thing that's different the the english and french interviews can be a little different and and they they both bear watching uh, and, and watching for these subtle differences. And with Radio uh, Canada, he said, yes, uh, the, 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 there, there were some problems, but it's, it's, it's really the total number of immigrants that we might have gotten wrong. In other words, he's talking about students, temporary foreign workers, and the number of permanent newcomers. He says, we probably got that permanent number right, uh, but there are probably too many uh, uh, student visas and, and too many temporary foreign workers. Uh, so he, he acknowledged an error there. And I think immigration was another interesting and I thought very interesting uh, point uh, that was raised with Pierre Poilier because he hasn't said a word. It's been very interesting that uh, in Canada, you don't get any of the political leaders coming out against uh, what is a substantial increase in, in immigration. And, and that's a rarity in the Western world where the, this notion of, of immigration, even though we have demographic challenges throughout the Western world, um, in, 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 the, in Western Europe, for instance, uh, in, in the United States, 
even though they have a demographic need, there is a, a call for a clampdown on, on new immigrants. You don't really get that in Canada. Po- politicians are very, very careful. But Poilier uh, did something on immigration. I believe it was with, with True North. It was. And, and he outlined, again, the broad outlines of this policy. He said that he's going to bring in a mathematical formula that ties the number of immigrants to the number of houses built. Well, that's really revelatory. Like he, That's the first time he said anything, and that would most likely lead to a reduction in the number of immigrants that Canada takes in. Uh, because I think Stephanie Levitz did the math on this at the Toronto Star. There, there's about 200,000 homes that were built in Canada in 2022. Depending on what the formula is, that'll probably lead to a substantial reduction in the number of immigrants allowed in Canada under a Pierre Poiliev government. So I'd like to know more from Mr. Poiliev about uh, as to whether or not that's the exact formula and what he's prepared to tell uh, those who want their family members to come in, for instance, those who want people to come in to take uh, jobs that are uh, that are not being filled, um, uh, what he's prepared to tell them about that formula as well. That's that's a substantial new piece of information. That uh, is, and it's a substantial issue out there. I mean, if if my mail is anything, the the, the two areas that you get most of these sort of you know constructive and thoughtful letters on are either housing or immigration. And they're not necessarily yeah. in that order. So it's very interesting in that sense. And and you're right. I hadn't realized that Polly had said that. And, and that uh, that is going to, um, you know, engage a certain debate about the future of immigration, especially in the short term. Let me ask you one question about that. I know some of our listeners uh, ask a lot in terms of interviews with the leaders. Um, and that is the the issue of whether or not news organizations submit a list of questions uh, to the prime minister's office or the opposition leader's office. Now, I know you can't speak for uh, all news organizations, but you have been involved with a number and you know how a number of others uh, operate. Um, Certainly, uh, I was never involved in anything like that at all. The only time, and I think I've said this before, the only time anybody ever asked for a list of questions was Al Gore when he was visiting in Toronto. And I said, no. I wouldn't do that. So we didn't get the interview and it went to somebody else who I won't bother naming, but I assume they gave, they gave their list of questions and that's how they got it. But on this issue of, because there are people out there, especially in this era of distrust of media who believe Mm -hmm. that, you know, we submit a list of questions and away we go. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing like that at all that I've ever been involved with. I have been involved with prime ministers who want you, uh, will give you an interview ahead of, let's say, a major event, and and they want you to just ask questions about that event. Um, and I remember being in conversations with the communication staff of the prime minister uh, who said, look, uh, we want to build trust with you, and this is one way you can show that, that you're trusted. Uh, and I said, you're offering me a shackled interview. And I can't do a shackled interview. I don't know of any of my predecessors that have ever taken a shackled interview. And if I take it, then I'm the guy who set the precedent that this organization, as with the Canadian press at the time, accepts shackled interviews. And I, I can't do it and I won't do it. We didn't get the interview. Uh, they, they did it with somebody else. So, so 
apart from that one instance, no, they're freewheeling. Um, I can, I can tell you though, that there are, you know, there, there is a tendency sometimes to try and ask gotcha questions. And, and those are the ones that I enjoy the least and often the, the, the politicians um, enjoy the least as well. Um, if, if the questions are wide open, um, uh, not, didn't you say this on this date? More, more like, tell me your thoughts about, you know, leadership. Where do you think leadership is going in the next little while, given that pop, uh, popular? That's just an example. If you ask a wide open question and then use deductive questioning to try to get to where you really want to go, I find that those are the most interesting interviews. You find more out more about uh, the person who's trying to lead the country and where they're trying to take us. Um, but never, never have I ever uh, subjected to a, a shackled interview. And, and I don't know of any other instance, except for that one instance in 35, 36 years on the Hill, uh, that, that that's been the case. All right. Um, we're going to take a quick break, come back for a, a couple of final questions. Uh, we're talking with Rob Russo. The uh, correspondent for The Economist here in Canada, former Bureau Chief CBC in Ottawa and Canadian Press in Ottawa. Also been in uh, Washington, Quebec City, you name it. Rob's uh, been to a lot of different places. Uh, Back with The Bridge right after this. And welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here with The Bridge, the... uh, Wednesday episode for this week. Uh, going forward, there will be no more live Wednesday episodes. Wednesdays will be sort of best of. Uh, I'm sure this. I'm sure this fascinating interview will come up in the best of at some point uh, in the uh, in the Wednesdays ahead. So um, we've got Rob Russo with us, and uh, we're talking about. Well, the main focus was on the uh, year-end interviews that have uh, happened. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, here's, um, I want to look forward because I want to sense, you know, so much has changed in the way we cover politics in the, you know, some things are the same as has been the case for as far back as you can remember, but some things have changed. And one of the things that's, changed is the way we cover campaigns, election campaigns, not only the way we decide to do them, but the way the parties look at coverage and the need for coverage and whether they really want all these journalists tagging around behind them. We could have an election in the next year, certainly in the next two years. What, what is the, uh, what's the rumble out there in terms of whether or not this next campaign, journalistically, is going to look any different than what we've witnessed in the past? Well, we don't know. We are, we, we are far out in advance. Like, I mean, they always have to have emergency plans. In a minority government, you know that, uh, that each party has an emergency plan ready to go. They've got an option on a plane. They've got an option on a bus. Uh, they've probably got preliminary what's called um, wrapping. So in other words, um, what the what used to be called the livery on on a plane and a bus, the sort of decals and everything else, what that might look like if they had to go right now. Um, but I, I'd be I'd be surprised if uh, if they decided on their communication strategy right now. Look, the the nature of, of campaigns are um, much different, in, but in, in many ways much the same. We call them national campaigns, but in reality, 
they're, they're really just 50 to 80 ridings that are in play. Uh, and those 50 to 80 ridings are where they, they opposite, the parties, all of them, poll every night. Thousands and thousands of people are polled every night in a very expensive operation. And it's where they spend the bulk of their time. There are a lot of parts of the country, when you look at the electoral map, who's elected, that are called flyover countries by the campaign managers. They don't spend a lot of time there. They fly over them as they try to get to contested ridings. Because those uh, contested ridings, those 50 to 80 ridings, are still disparate, okay? It's Vancouver, Vancouver suburbs, uh, BC Lower Mainland. Uh, it's it's Southern Ontario in a big, big way. Uh, and... You know, this year we, we might see uh, more of those contested ridings uh, in, in Atlantic Canada uh, and to a lesser extent, Quebec. Um, those are so disparate that you have to have an airplane. You have to fly uh, from one part of the country to get there. But most of the time is spent not in the air like it was when you and I were covering campaigns, but on the ground in buses now. Because you, you fly to get there and then you spend a lot of time in these battleground areas. So... Uh, does that mean that that some people might not go with um, a traveling retinue? I, I would be surprised. I, I would be surprised. It, it could happen. There, there is clearly a strategy uh, by this iteration of the Conservative Party to avoid the parliamentary press gallery. And the people covering these campaigns, these national campaigns, most often are people in the parliamentary press gallery. Um, so will that continue? Will the Conservatives do that? Uh, if there was an election held this year, perhaps, um, but it's going to be harder for them to do it. It's going to be harder for them uh, to, to avoid uh, uh, gallery members because they'll just set up in some of those hotly contested areas. Uh, so I don't anticipate we're going to see a lot of difference in the way people travel. But clearly, um, you know, campaigns used to be designed in, in the last few decades for television. That, that's not the case anymore. They're now designed for social media. Um, they're designed to, um, we, you know, we used to talk about about the, the 10 second clip. You remember the 10 second clip? Yeah. Well, that's a luxury now. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's, it's really, uh, you know, the, the visual two or three second quip that, uh, that, that, that sells on social media. They're, they're initially uh, quick, quickly edited and expedited out through various social media channels to people that have been identified on Facebook and Instagram, uh, to a lesser extent, Twitter, um, and, and, um, and, and aim slowly or uh, slowly at them. Uh, you could not, you could not run a campaign now, a successful campaign without an ACE digital media strategist who is, and, um, along with your pollster, probably the two most important people on your campaign. Uh, okay, last question, and, and it's about it's about money. Um, conservatives have bags of money; uh, they can run, I'm sure, right. any any campaign that they want to. They they are loaded, uh, and and will only get more loaded as the as time goes on, unless something radically changes. Um, the Liberals are not loaded; they have money; they know where to get money but they're not in the same position as the Conservatives. And then there's, uh, well, there, uh, you know, we haven't mentioned the NDP, but they're a player, and they're a player in a lot of these tight races that, uh, that you've already mentioned. Um, but then there's the media, and the media is not flush on cash. And yeah. traveling yeah. in a campaign on, on the planes is a very expensive. 
Yeah. So money will have an impact here too. It, it, it already it already has an impact. When when the prime minister travels abroad, the number of news organizations that travel with him have dwindled down to very very few. Even the the news networks, uh, television networks that used to have all the money, uh, now do what's called pool coverage, which was a you know a surprise to me when I arrived at CBC. Uh, just really how how much is pooled. Um, and, and how it's just one news reporter for each television network and their technical teams are shared. Um, and, and so even, even there, even they've fallen on hard times. So what does that mean? Um, it, it really means um, that the, the cares and concerns of regional media often go unheeded. Uh, and that's a, that's a shame. And it's one of the things that those of us who, who tried to, to organize national campaigns had it taken into account. A campaign is one of those rare instances where to, as much as possible, we've got to put the voter and the citizen first. Uh, and in some instances, that means getting out of the way of the voter and the citizen and allowing a more direct contact between the politicians and, and voters um, while trying to get the politicians to say exactly what they would do. I, I remember a famous campaign when I started as a young reporter, the, the Trudeau campaign in 1980, where he, they, they, they did what they called low bridging him, trying to keep him as quiet as possible. This is Pierre Trudeau uh, and, and not say much because he was going to skid to victory if he did after a disastrous kind of nine month Joe Clark term. Um, and, and you don't want that to happen. Um, but you don't want areas of the country to go unheeded and areas of the country will not get their concerns addressed in this campaign as it is now. And that's not a good thing for our democracy. Last quick point. Um, does the media still do a good job covering politics in Canada? Oh boy. Um, there are, how many hours have you got left in the broadcast? <laughs> we don't. The podcast. Yeah. <laughs> You know, look, I think that uh, it's a very, very difficult job. It was the best job I ever had. Uh, I, I, I think the current circumstances are more difficult now for media than ever. But I think that we do have uh, a, a responsibility uh, and, and we have played a role in some of the mistrust that has grown in media as well. We have a lot to learn. We, we have a lot to be reflective about. And there are times when I don't think we're reflective enough. That being said... There are people who are intent on taking the credibility we have and trying to destroy it. Uh, and, and I think that that's, again, a bad thing for democracy. Uh, in, in this day, when facts are under assault, we need places where people can come together and get facts. And it used to be that we could do that um, around uh, our newspapers, our radio broadcasts, and our television broadcasts. And that isn't the case anymore for a variety of reasons. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's too bad. I think we need to do a better job in the media. And I, and I do think that those who profit from the, the politics of division, and I don't think that this is restricted to any one party, I, I think those people do a disservice to the country and to our democracy as well. We're going to leave it at that. Great conversation. Thanks so much, Rob. Always a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure as well, Peter. Rob Russo uh, with us today. And it, just to remind you, Rob is now currently the uh, correspondent based in Canada for The Economist. Um, and he's already had a number of big stories. 
in his new role at The Economist, which is only, uh, I think, a couple of months old now at the moment, uh, but formerly the uh, bureau chief at two of the biggest bureaus uh, in the country, actually, the uh, Parliamentary Bureau of the CBC News in Ottawa and the Parliamentary Bureau of Canadian Press, uh, also in Ottawa. So it's always interesting to hear from Rob. Um, you know, I'm obviously I'm a big fan uh, of Rob, and uh, in uh, many ways, when he was bureau chief in Ottawa, and I was uh, you know, doing the national, he was kind of my boss whenever I did anything in in Ottawa, and I greatly benefited from his uh, wise counsel over um, uh, many stories and many days. Okay, a couple of quick points before we. Uh, we leave you. One is an in-bit of sorts. Did, did you have a white Christmas? We didn't hear in Stratford uh, the day after Christmas it snowed. And um, well, actually, it was actually the day after. Was it the day after Christmas or the day after New Year's? No, it was the day after Christmas it snowed. And um, and it's and there's still snow. Not, not much, you know, maybe an inch or two on the ground. Um, but as Rob said, they haven't had any snow in Ottawa yet. No white Christmas there. Uh, and no white Christmas in many parts of the country. Uh, not all, but uh, many parts of the country. But here's, how do you define a white Christmas? Now, I imagine different countries and different communities have different definitions on how they define it. But I found this interesting. It's from Scotland, and it's from uh, a particular area in Scotland, Tullock Bridge and Avimore. Now, the Met Office, the Metropolitan, or the Meteorological Office uh, in uh, those communities, their decision on how to define a white Christmas depends on snowflakes being recorded on Christmas Day. And this year, they determined that uh, Avamore and Tullock Bridge um, had official white Christmases because it is defined as at least one snowflake falling on the 25th of December. One snowflake doesn't matter if it by the time it touches the ground it disappears within a minute it was there for a minute and therefore there was a white Christmas oh boy you learn something every day on the bridge right now you know the official definition at least in that part of Scotland of how you get a white Christmas all right Last reminder about tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, Thursday on the bridge is uh, your turn, but your turn very specific this year in our new year. We're going to ask a question each week. We'll try to put it out there on Mondays, ask you the question, and you'll have a couple of days to respond. And the best answer on that question will receive a signed book. So we're looking forward to doing that. Here's this week's question. And there have already been many, many really good, thoughtful answers to this question. The question is simple. If you were able to change one thing 
about the way politics is done in Canada, about Canada's political system, one change, not two, not three, not a half a dozen, one, just one, one change, what would that change be? Now, as I said, there have been many people have written in already. I've also asked to keep it short, a couple of sentences. You don't, you don't need much to give one change. So away you go. Those who write longer, and, uh, and there have been a few who've had like a, quite a few suggested changes, they either disqualify themselves because it's not fair to others, or I just pick one at random out of their suggestions. So we'll see where that ends up, right? Please don't forget to not only include your name, but where you're writing from. That's an important part of this. We'd love to get a sense of the country in your letters and your ideas. So you can write to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That's tomorrow's show, along with the random ranter and maybe another end bit. I've got a whole bunch of them here, and if there's room for one, we'll certainly put it in there. That's it for today. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you again to um, Rob Russo. We'll be back in 24 hours.